Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Tuesday, February 13th, 2024. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today. Biden is not reconsidering support for the Gaza slaughter. So President Biden has no plans to alter his policy of unequivocal support for Israel's slaughter in Gaza, despite claiming in private conversations that he's frustrated with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. And this was reported by NBC News on Monday. So sources told NBC that Biden had disparaged Netanyahu in private conversations with other people, including some campaign donors. The sources claimed that Biden said he wanted a ceasefire, but Netanyahu was giving him hell, and in at least three instances, Biden referred to the Israeli leader as an a-hole. Biden has even said he believes Netanyahu wants the war to drag on so he can remain in power, as polling in Israel shows they want the Israeli leader to step down once the onslaught in Gaza comes to an end. So that's really something that they're saying Biden has even said, and, and we've seen these comments from his uh, U.S. officials in, in the media that they believe Netanyahu's political survival relies on him extending this war, extending this massacre in Gaza for as long as he can, and even potentially provoking uh, you know, a major regional conflict. So Biden even recognizes that, or at least he, he, he says he does, and is still giving him all the military aid and, and all the bombs that he needs. Biden has also said publicly that he believes the Israeli conduct in Gaza has been over the top, but the apparent frustration has done nothing to alter the U.S. policy of unconditional military aid and political support. The NBC report reads, quote, yet even as Biden has escalated his rhetoric, he is not yet prepared to make significant policy changes, officials said. He and his aides continue to believe his approach of unequivocally supporting Israel is the right one, end quote. So Biden and his aides, you know, referring to Blinken, Sullivan, all the people at the top, think that they should just keep chugging along and, and giving Israel whatever they want, even though Israel has repeatedly rebuffed the U.S., you know, in their comments and concerns that they talk about. Um, this has happened over the past few months, you know, throughout this entire thing. And the latest thing that happened was on Sunday, Biden spoke with Netanyahu by phone and said that Israel should only launch an attack on the southern Gaza city of Rafa if it has a plan to take into account the safety of the over 1 million Palestinian civilians who are packed into the city. But on Sunday night, that same night, Israel unleashed a very heavy bombing campaign on Rafa. Uh, estimates of the death toll in that one night, Sunday night into Monday morning, are around 100 people uh, were killed. Uh, local officials said that Israeli bombs targeted two mosques and 12 residential buildings in the city. And there was a, a, a ground element to this attack as well, as Israel said that it rescued two Israeli hostages from the city. 
So right after Biden says, you know, don't go in there and unless you take into account the civilians, Israel ramps up the bombing and you know, basically carries out a raid on the ground. And, you know, this is just kind of a, uh, a preview of, of what could happen if Israel launches a full scale attack, you know, if, if something like this happens every day. Um, so just again, just showing that this U.S., if they really care about the civilian casualties and stuff, the, the answer would be to cut off the Israelis. And we've seen a lot of reports lately about how upset and frustrated Biden is with Netanyahu. But again, when, when it comes down to it, he's not doing anything. It's all just propaganda. Obviously, this is a, a big part of uh, trying to answer the, the criticism within the Democratic Party. And I bet it I'm sure it works on some people that they say, oh, you know, Biden's doing everything he can. He's really mad at Netanyahu. What is he going to do? But many will see through it and see this as transparent um, to to act. Biden's trying to separate himself from this slaughter, even though he is supporting it to the to the hilt. All right. So the next one here, CIA chief William Burns heads to Egypt for Israel Hamas hostage deal talks. So CIA Director William Burns is headed to Egypt, where he will meet with Egyptian and Qatari intelligence officials to discuss work on a potential hostage deal between Israel and Hamas. Israel has been resisting the idea of more hostage negotiations since Hamas's latest proposal, which called for a 135-day truce to facilitate a permanent ceasefire. U.S. officials initially told ABC News that it's unclear if Israel will attend the talks in Egypt which are scheduled for Tuesday. But so I saw that report was just published by ABC News. And then around the same time, Axios published a report that said Netanyahu had actually decided to send an official to participate in these talks. And that's going to be uh, David Barnia, the head of the Mossad spy agency. So it looks like Israel is participating, but, um, you know, they're, they're still signaling that they're not interested in negotiations. An Israeli official told Axios that Israel would participate in the talks, quote, to listen regardless of Hamas's delusional demands, end quote. When Netanyahu rejected Hamas's offer, uh, which was last week, he said that there was no solution but total victory. And he's talking about military solution is the only way. President Biden was touting the idea of a hostage deal on Monday during a press conference with Jordan's King Abdullah, who was visiting Washington. Biden said, quote, the key element of the deal are on the table. There are gaps that remain, but I've encouraged Israeli leaders to keep working to achieve the deal, end quote. Biden said the deal would involve a six-week pause. I know at one point, according to all these you know, the, the reports on these hostage negotiations that like a six-week ceasefire was on the table in exchange for Hamas releasing some of the Israeli hostages they have, not all of them. Uh, so, but th- that's not clear if that's what they're asking for, if they're still asking for Hamas to release uh, everybody that they have left. Biden claimed that the U.S. will do everything possible to ensure that a deal is reached, but of course... That excludes actually using the leverage that they have over Israel. Um, And Hamas has warned that an Israeli invasion of Rafah would torpedo hostage deal talks. And Netanyahu is still talking about this invasion. And one thing I mentioned here, you know, Israel rescuing those two hostages in Rafah kind of gives Netanyahu a little propaganda 
victory because he's been under all this pressure from uh, the hostage families to reach a deal to to free the hostages, and he's been saying no. Military, you know, the military option is the only way to go. So here he could say, oh, see, look, we rescued two hostages, but many more have been killed. Uh, Israel said recently that around thirty of the about one hundred and thirty remaining Israelis in Gaza are dead, and of course, the one that the the you know we don't know the circumstances around all of their deaths, but I think we can assume that they were killed by Israeli bombs. You know, Hamas does not have an interest in killing hostages; it's their leverage. Um, the one that was really publicized, the killing was I think it was in December when Israeli forces gunned down three Israeli hostages who were shirtless and waving a white flag, which says a lot about um, the conduct of the the IDF on the ground. So those talks are on Tuesday. We'll see what happens. Um, All right, so the next one here, the EU's top diplomat slams the U.S. for arming Israel. So Josep Borrell, he's the European Union's top foreign policy official, he took a swipe at the U.S. on Monday for claiming that it's concerned about civilian casualties in Gaza while still supplying weapons to Israel. Burrell was referencing President Biden recently calling Israel's military operations in Gaza over the top while not actually doing anything to stop it. Burrell said, quote, well, if you believe that too many people are being killed, maybe you should provide less arms in order to prevent so many people being killed. If the international community believes that this is a slaughter, that too many people are being killed, maybe we have to think about the provision of arms, end quote. Since October 7th, um, I just gave a little background about how the U.S. is claiming they care about civilians, but not cutting them off. Um, And EU countries are also arming Israel. I know German weapons exports to Israel have really increased since October 7th. Uh, Burrell said, quote, everybody goes to Tel Aviv begging, please protect civilians. Don't kill so many. How many is too many? End quote. Um, So a little criticism from, you know, someone considered to be a a close U.S. ally. All right, so the next one here, a Dutch court orders government to halt delivery of F-35 parts to Israel. So a a Dutch court ruled on Monday that the Netherlands must halt the export of spare parts for F-35 fighter jets to Israel since they're likely to be used to kill civilians in Gaza. The Netherlands hosts a warehouse of U.S.-owned F-35 parts and exports them to countries that operate the fighter jets. Uh, The court said in the ruling, quote, The court finds that there is a clear risk that Israel's F-35 fighter jets might be used in the commission of serious violations of international humanitarian law, end quote. So the Dutch government said that it would appeal the ruling, which ordered a halt to the exports within seven days. The ruling came as a result of a lawsuit filed against the Netherlands by Oxfam and other human rights organizations. Um, Losing spare parts from the Netherlands is not really, you know, going to have an impact on Israel's military operations. This is just spare parts for F-35s. They can source that equipment elsewhere. But this ruling, you know, kind of adds to the growing international pressure. And it could inspire similar lawsuits in other countries that are arming Israel. Um, so it, uh, you know, maybe we'll see more of this, of these types of lawsuits, maybe filed in the, in the U.S. Um, or or other European countries that are 
arming Israel. All right, so the next one here, seized Russian yacht is costing the U.S. over $7 million. So a yacht belonging to a Russian billionaire that was seized by the U.S. under the pretext of sanctions enforcement in May 2022 is costing the U.S. $7 million per year to maintain. So according to Reuters, the U.S. seized this yacht called the Amadia. Amadea, I'm not sure exactly how to pronounce that, but it's a $300 million yacht and the U.S. seized it in Fiji under a warrant alleging that it was owned by Suleiman Karimov, who's a Russian billionaire who was sanctioned by the U.S. in 2014 and 2018. The U.S. wants to auction off the yacht and give the money to Ukraine, but that is being challenged in court, in court by Edward Kudainatov, who is the former CEO of of Russia's state-owned oil company, Rosneft, who is not under U.S. sanctions. So he's not under sanctions. I'm not sure if he's a billionaire or not, but he's, you know, a very wealthy Russian. Um, Kudinaitov says that the yacht is actually his, and the U.S. is accusing him of acting as a straw owner to cover for Karimov. In October 2023, Kudinaitov filed federal court papers in San Diego, where the yacht is currently docked, asserting that he owned it and saying it could not be sold off since he's not under U.S. sanctions. So the Reuters report said that U.S. federal prosecutors said in a court filing issued on Friday that the $600,000 bill the U.S. is paying to maintain this yacht each month, so it's $600,000 a month, that's how much the U.S. is paying. So they're saying that because that is such an excessive bill, that means they should just be able to sell it off send the money to Ukraine and call it a day. But lawyers for Kudinatov say that the U.S. attempt to sell the yacht was premature and that they would urge the judge presiding over the case to deny it until he determines whether the seizure was unconstitutional. So it's kind of an interesting situation. Um, and it just goes to show it doesn't seem like it was super thought out by the U.S. that, oh, look, we could seize this really expensive yacht and sell it, and now they're stuck maintaining it for $7 million a year. Um, And this is part of this U.S. strategy to steal, that's what it is, steal Russian assets to give more money to the Ukrainian government. So far, the DOJ has facilitated the transfer of some assets of Russian billionaires. I know, I'm not sure of the exact number, but I believe I found, uh, Blinken said recently that the U.S. has sent 5.4 million dollars worth of russian uh oligarch as they call them assets to ukraine so the big prize for the u.s and ukraine is the 300 billion dollars in the russian in russian central bank funds so this was frozen by the u.s and the eu right after the russian invasion 300 billion dollars and basically the u.s the white house recently threw its support behind a plan to take this money and give it to ukraine it's a lot of money about 67 billion of it is in the u.s 200 something billion is in the eu and i know some is in japan as well uh so it's mostly in the eu and so far the eu has not agreed to this idea yet and the u.s would need legislation they would need to pass laws and this would be an unprecedented step, actually, you know, basically stealing this money from Russia. And I think it would speed up, you know, de-dollarization. It would make other countries think twice about 
keeping money, you know, in the U.S. dollar and at the Federal Reserve uh, Bank. So, you know, but that's something that they really want to do. So especially as Biden is struggling to get this new $60 billion in Ukraine aid passed. Um, All right. So the next one here, anti-conscription protests emerge in Ukraine. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone at the Libertarian Institute. um, And it's about Ukraine's manpower problem. Um, so he covers, uh, some protests that took, that broke out in Ukraine against the conscription. They heard there is, um, at this one specific village of Kosmak, uh, the residents heard that conscriptors, you know, were coming, recruiters were coming and they actually, um, blocked they they took to the streets to block any potential military officials from entering their town and taking more of their men off to war. So this is something, and I know we've seen some protests of women whose you know husbands or other family members were either drafted or volunteered in the very early days. Most of them volunteered at that point of the invasion, and they're still out there fighting on the front line after you know nearly two years. So there's been protests to put limits on how, how long they have to be out there. And then now we're starting to see protests against conscription. And Zelensky is facing huge troop shortages. There's been reports, you know, explaining, uh, really outlining the really dire situation for the Ukrainian soldiers on the front lines. And, you know, the way that they would have to remedy this if they want to keep this war going is a big mobilization. They're talking something like 500,000 new troops. So this could really cause some more kind of dissent within the country against this war, against continuing uh, the fighting. All right, so the next one here, famine looms in Sudan after 10 months of war. So Sudan is something I have not covered in a really long time. Someone mentioned to me on Twitter today that I should do an update on it. And I saw this article. This is from Al Jazeera. So Sudan, it's been 10 months now that since war broke out between the two rival generals, Al-Burhan, who is the head of the the army, and then Hameti, as he's known, who is the head of the Rapid Support Forces, which is kind of a paramilitary group. Um, You know, they were in the same military government and everything, and they've been fighting for 10 months, I looked up the death toll is estimated to be between 12 and 15,000, but there's serious food shortages. Millions have been, something like 10 million people have been displaced by this war. And, you know, Sudan was already dealing with things like, you know, food shortages. And now it's, of course, war always exacerbates stuff like that. Um, so this article is from Al Jazeera just about the warnings of famine in Sudan. The United Nations estimates that about 18 million people are facing emergency levels of hunger, double the figure from last year. A recent internet blackout across the country compounded the crisis by suspending money transfers, which the diaspora relies on to support loved ones in the country. As famine looms, aid agencies are calling for $4.1 billion in funding to avert catastrophe. They quote, an expert on famines, Alex Day Wall, who I believe Daniel Arison recently cited some of his writing about the situation in Gaza. And he's saying in if hunger levels stay where they are, hundreds of thousands of children will die by next year. Um, so just a really bleak outlook for, for Sudan. And 
as far as I know, I haven't been following it too closely. There's not really any negotiations happening right now, and it's not clear if when this thing could possibly end. I, I know the RSF has basically taken over Khartoum, the capital. Most of the fighting has been around there and down in, in the Darfur region. Um, so it just, you know, continues to drag on. I can't believe it's been 10 months. I mean, that was, so that was April almost a year ago that I, I, you know, covered it very little, but I did cover it when it first broke out. Um, All right. So the next one here, uh, former Chinese envoy says that China will not fall into a trap of war in Taiwan. This article is from the South China Morning Post. China's former ambassador to the U.S., Q. Tiankai, said that Beijing will not fall into a trap of someone starting a war in the Taiwan Strait. I thought these comments were interesting. He said, quote, we certainly don't want to see a situation where Chinese are killing Chinese, end quote. So this is something, uh, you know, he's basically insinuating, oh, the U.S. is trying to provoke a war, you know, across the Taiwan Strait. China's not going to be dumb enough to to fall into the trap. Um and he was in the the I believe he was China's longest yeah longest serving ambassador to Washington, so it's just interesting coming from him coming from somebody who's very familiar with uh, with the U.S. saying something like that. And again, I covered last week, and there's been more reports basically confirming this that the U.S. has deployed um, probably maybe only a few dozen troops. We don't know the number, but military advisors to Kinmen Islands, which are Taiwanese-controlled islands that are basically on the coast of China, 2.5 miles away from Xiamen, which is a major Chinese city. So that's the kind of reckless things that the U.S. uh, is doing right now when it comes to China and Taiwan. Um, So that's it for today. It was was a pretty slow day. I guess, um, you know, the day after Super Bowl, a lot of people didn't want to work, but... uh, the uh, I left up the one about the Senate working on that $95 billion foreign military aid bill. Basically, all day on Monday, Rand Paul was filibustering on the Senate floor, delaying it. Um, but it seems like the, about 17 or 18 Republicans are, are going to support it, and it's probably going to pass the Senate. Question is if it will get a vote in the House. Um, I haven't seen Speaker Johnson really say much about this. I know he said that he supports sending aid to Ukraine, of course, he supports sending money to Israel. So that's kind of the big question. But um, go check out our viewpoints. One from Ted Snyder. Zelensky replacing Zelushny is not just the firing of another general. So his analysis on, you know, and the potential repercussions of Zelensky getting rid, getting rid of Zelushny, who's very popular, very beloved by the military. Um, so who knows what could happen. Uh the, One from Jeffrey Sachs, the Biden-Schumer plan to kill more Ukrainians. One from James A. Russell, strike warfare, an American fetish, and a global scourge. And one from Ron Paul, Tucker Slade, the mainstream media dragon. And our spotlight is from Nick Terse, at Responsible Statecraft. Terrorism in Africa increased 100,000% during the U.S. war on terror. So basically, since the U.S. decided to go fight in Africa against terrorists and 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 help, you know, it it's increased by a hundred thousand percent. I mean, a really astonishing number. 
So go check all that out. Another thing, so I want to start driving people because I've had I've heard from a few listeners and and people that watch and readers that you know we should try to do more kind of activism stuff. See what we could do to move the needle. You know, I spend so much time reading and reporting on this horrible news. Um, and I think kind of the best thing for anti-war Americans to get involved in right now is defend the guard. And I know I've covered this when um, when they win, when they when they get legislation passed through a chamber. But essentially what defend the guard is, is that it's state legislation that if passed and it became law, it would prohibit the federal government from deploying the National Guard into active combat without a formal declaration of war by Congress as provided by the U.S. Constitution. The U.S. hasn't declared, the Congress hasn't formally declared war since World War II. The National Guard is being deployed to Syria, Iraq. I I know someone that was just recently in Somalia that's in the National Guard. Um, at, At the air base in Jordan, the three U.S. troops who were killed were members of the U.S. Army Reserves. The 40 that were wounded were uh, guardsmen. So that's who they're sending over there to be sitting ducks at these bases. And so I think this legislation, uh, there's a lot of potential and they've, it's a, it's a young project, but they've already passed it. I know they passed it through the New Hampshire house. Um, They're working on other States. So what's really cool is you could go to, go to defendtheguard.us and you can click on your state to see the status of the legislation in your state, I believe they have it. They're working on it in 30 U.S. states. Um, so go check that out. And you could also phone bank with Defend the Guard. I'll put the link in for that in the description. That's if you really want to help and really annoy politicians into uh, getting them to support this. Um, so this is something I'm going to try to kind of push a little more. And let me know, you know, if I know some people that listen and 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 watch this show are involved already very much so in, in trying to get defend the guard passed in their state. So, you know, I think it's something we could do that has a lot of potential and the activists behind it are very serious and know how to get things done. It's pretty impressive with, with the small group that they have. Um, so I'll put more information in the description again, the, the link to the phone bank. And, uh, I meant to like kind of prepare a thing for this today, but I kind of forgot. So Kind of just this is just off the top of my head, but kind of more specific things I, I want to tell people about the phone banking and stuff. But so anyway, go to defendtheguard.us and I'll put the link to the phone bank in the description. And what that basically is is that you would get trained to call these state politicians and badger them into supporting this uh, legislation when you know before a vote in a certain state. Um, and it's pretty intense, you know, you have to really, uh, want to do it, uh, want to be involved to do that. But I think it's a real way that you could help out and try to move the needle instead of, you know, just hearing about the bad news all the time. Uh, anyway, that's it for me for today. You could always support this show by sharing it, liking, subscribing on YouTube. I appreciate all the comments and all that. Um, but I will be back tomorrow with some more news for you. Thanks for listening.